Father God, would your name be praised this morning? By your spirit, please open our eyes, soften our hearts, ready our minds. Show us your son, Jesus Christ. Through what we read and think about now, would our eyes be filled with him? And do you move us to worship? Please equip me to speak. Uh, Take away anything unhelpful. Guard my words, Lord, and use them for your purpose. Amen. Amen. The Bible is the most remarkable book. Um, And for me, the nature of this book is one of the key convincing pieces of evidence for the reality of the Christian faith. The idea that so many different human authors working over such a huge span of centuries, writing in different languages and different cultures, could independently write a book like this with so much internal consistency and complexity and yet have no similar literary tradition around them, that feels very far-fetched to me. That's not an original thought. It's C.S. Lewis, but I couldn't find the original quote, so my own words. As we look at different parts of the Bible, we, we see such rich and deep patterns and connections that I can't help feeling there has to be a guiding spirit or mind behind it. And and so as we read and preach, it's really important for us to remember that. Because seeing the passage that we're looking at this morning in the context of Scripture will change how we understand it. We're doing this summer series looking at the last 14 chapters of the book of Genesis. Matt got us started really well last week. But I'd imagine that for most of us, we've probably not heard much teaching on these sections as adults. So characters like Joseph probably sit in our minds as dimly remembered Sunday school lessons or little standalone episodes from Bible history or or maybe a musical. And, And that's okay, it's a good musical. And there's good stuff that we can learn from it. But we'll get a richer picture if we put this in the context of the whole story. So if we just think about this story today on its own, Then what we have is Joseph, unfairly imprisoned, but faithful to his God. And we've been told in previous chapters that God is with him, so that even as a slave or a prisoner, he keeps rising into leadership kind of positions. And in our passage today, we see the great king of Egypt, Pharaoh, troubled by nightmares, and it's only Joseph who can interpret them. And only because, as as faithful Joseph points out in verse 16, God grants it. And so Joseph is exalted and he's raised to power, and that's nice. And we could look at Joseph and we could imitate him in faithfulness. We could imitate his trust in God in hard times. We could imitate his confidence that God's in control. But we get a much richer picture when we fit this passage into the whole Bible context. So Matt reminded us last week that this is the book of Genesis. It's the creation story. And chapters 1 to 11 show the creation of the world and the nations. But just as importantly, chapters 11 onwards are showing us the creation of God's covenant people. 
This is the origin story for the rest of the Bible. It's the lens through which we're meant to start reading Exodus and everything that comes afterwards. And really helpfully, Matt pointed out for us that at the start of this chunk, in chapter 37, verse 2, we're told that this isn't just the story of Joseph. No, this was the account of Jacob's family line. Jacob, whose other name is Israel. This is the creation story of God's people. And that's important for us to hear, because my first inclination is probably to look at chapter 41 and read it as the story of how Joseph is vindicated, which it is. But that's not the whole point. And if we just see Joseph as a model for us in this story, there there might be good things for us to imitate, but I'm not sure he really maps onto us. For example, it, it would be a mistake to read this as a promise of how, like Joseph, we'll be given riches and security. That's not the point. In fact, that's not even where Joseph really ends up, if we read carefully. Yes, by the end of this chapter, he's rich and powerful, but it's a very precarious position. He might be clean-shaven and dressed in nice clothes for the Egyptian rulers, but he's still a dirty foreigner. Last week, we heard Potiphar's wife spitting out that him as a Hebrew. In a couple of chapters to time, we'll find out that Egyptians wouldn't even share a table with Hebrews. Pharaoh's on his side now, that's true, but Pharaoh is nuts. In chapter 40, he had people imprisoned, released, beheaded like that on a whim. So here, Pharaoh lifts Joseph up to the highest position in the land within a couple of hours of meeting him. But he could take him down any time, and, and sure enough, it If we read ahead to the start of the next book, Exodus, Joseph's people were not saved. They were enslaved and hated. Now, the point of chapter 41 isn't the rise of Joseph. The point is that these chapters together are the creation of Israel. They show us the way that God works to form his covenant nation. And there are lessons and echoes here, which are picked up and developed throughout the Bible. And they point consistently and universally forwards to the person of Jesus. So scripture is full of kids like Joseph, treasured, miracle, favorite children. Isaac, Joseph, Moses, Samuel, John the Baptist, Jesus. Scripture is full of wise young rulers who face danger and opposition. Joseph, Moses, Daniel, Esther, Jesus. So while there might be practical things here that we could imitate, the real application from this morning is for us to see the patterns in the way that God works and to fill our eyes with Christ and to worship him. Let's get into that then. I've got um, three little lessons for us to pull out, three patterns about how God works to form his covenant nation. The first uh, is small but important. God works through hardship. I think there'll be a bullet point in a moment. Um, Look at verse 1 of chapter 41. When two full years had passed. Oof. Do you remember the story so far? First, 
In Jacob's messy family, Joseph was the favorite son. And because he was very clearly loved the most, his brothers hated him. And that, that wasn't helped by his prophetic dreams of being a ruler or his father's extravagant gift of an embroidered cloak. And so seething with jealousy, his brothers plotted first to kill him and then to sell him off into slavery. Second, in slavery, it looked like things were going well. He managed his master's household with skill and discretion, but a false accusation of rape put him in prison. I'd imagine he's beaten and lucky to be alive. And then third, in prison, once again in chapter 40, he rises to prominence. He serves the prison warden well. And it looks like things are going to turn around as he interprets the dreams of his fellow prisoners. And everyone can see there is something special here. God's with him. But chapter 40, verse 23 the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Oof. Three massive steps downwards, and Joseph has descended essentially into death in prison. He's not getting out. And what does God do? Chapter 41, verse 1. When two full years had passed, Joseph spends the prime of his young adult life locked away, a convicted criminal. God works to form his covenant nation through suffering and hardship. It's a deliberate pattern that we will see again and again through the Bible. And think of Jonah in the belly of the whale in the depths of the sea. Think of Jesus humbling himself to persecution and death on the cross. Think of Stephen and Paul living and dying in imitation of him. And, and the heart of the story in this chapter isn't even that after hardship, Joseph will get riches. Because remember, this isn't the story of Joseph. It's the story of Jacob's family. It's about how they are redeemed and saved through Joseph's suffering. Now, the point of the story is that this is how God chooses to work. And it's not even that the suffering happens, but God is stronger. No, the suffering's the plan. And we can see that if we, if we remember how Jacob, in his favoritism, gave Joseph an ornate robe. It, it was the garment of an overseer who doesn't get their hands dirty. So whether consciously or not, Jacob's gift is a comment on Joseph's gifting to rule. So it's the very quality which Joseph needs in chapter 41 that sets him aside to work out God's saving plan. It's the same quality that sets him aside for his brother's hatred or brings him to the attention of Potiphar's wife and leads him to persecution and imprisonment. Can you think of anyone else like that in Scripture? Of course, it's Jesus, isn't it? The son that God loves the most. The one whose authoritative teaching and miracles and faithfulness to his father are, are the very same things that inspire hatred and murder from his Israelite brothers. God saves his people through suffering and even death because 
In his wisdom, he is pleased to choose what the world sees as weakness, to overcome all the strength of sin and death. So he's pleased to use prisoner Joseph to save superpower Egypt and establish his people Israel along the way. He's pleased to use a criminal's death on the cross to work out the fullness of his glory. I think it's amazing to see that pattern again and again through Scripture. Isn't it amazing that we can look back here at the very start of recorded history and see that even there, the Lord is already teaching about the way that he will work to call a people for himself. Joseph shows us the pattern. Jesus fulfills that pattern. And Jesus was very clear that his disciples should expect to share his sufferings. Perhaps right now, that's not you. And life is pretty rosy. And that's great. It's all right. Rejoice in it. There's no shame. But I know there will be many here who can sympathize with Joseph. Imprisoned and stuck with no change in sight. We can think of some of our asylum-seeking brothers and friends stuck in limbo and waiting for the government to make impossible decisions. Or some of us struggling and dispirited and desperate with the costs of rent or mortgage or just life at the moment. And it's not clear when that gets better, is it? Or some of us struggling with loneliness or grief or longing for children, or physical or mental health, or broken relationships, or just weariness. And we don't know exactly how Joseph responded through those two full years in prison. But the Bible gives us good examples, doesn't it, of prayers of lament, beautiful psalms that pour out sorrow to God. And maybe churches like ours often aren't good at this, but, but it is right and good for us to cry out to the Lord in our pain and to give honest voice to our feelings. He gives us songs to do it with. If that's the season you're in at the moment, please talk to one of us. Maybe there are practical things that we can do. We have a hardship fund. We can offer pastoral support. But we can also just be with you and pray with you and lament with you. We can even rejoice with you because Christ has walked this path ahead of us. He walks with us. We know our Redeemer lives. We know that God is pleased to humble this world by working through hardship. So first, God, God works through hardship. Secondly, and into the meat of this story, God works according to his power and sovereignty. So, much like in the book of Daniel, much later on in the Bible, the picture here is that the ruler of the superpower has almost no control. Do you see that? Pharaoh's only real decision in this chapter is to humbly recognise that Joseph's God is in control. Verse 37, can we find anyone like this man one in whom is the Spirit of God. And the rest of the story of this and the surrounding chapters is pushing home the real sovereignty. <clears throat> if you've ever watched or read a really good detective story, 
You might know the feeling at the end when the detective, maybe it's Hercule Poirot, twirling his moustache, and he explains how all the clues fit together. And you marvel at the way that the author has built up this intricate clockwork puzzle. It's so clever. This story of of Jacob's family is a bit like that. In these 14 chapters, there's barely a wasted word. And each paragraph hangs together to show us what's really going on and who's truly in control. So Joseph probably can't see it. He's stuck in the mess. But Pharaoh is not in charge. And it's not random chance either. God is putting all the right things in the right places at the right times. Look at the dreams. Pharaoh has these two weird nightmares. Nightmares that I think of famine and death triumphing over abundance. They leave him unsettled and troubled, we're told, in verse 8. And no one can make sense of them. His usual advisors are confounded. They They don't have the understanding they need. Except it just so happens that Pharaoh's cupbearer had a similar experience. And it was a real kick in the teeth at the end of chapter 40 when the cupbearer forgot about Joseph. Except then it means now he's there at the right time to pipe up and bring Joseph into the action at exactly the right point. If Joseph had got out of prison two years ago, that might not have worked. And that means that Joseph is there in verse 16, ready to give the credit to God, so that Pharaoh can be humbled and recognize it in verse 38 to 40. God has made all this known to you, Joseph. And then look at Joseph's interpretation of the dreams in verses 25 to 32. It says that seven years of abundance and the seven years of famine. But, but also in verse 25, he says, the two dreams are saying the same thing. And then in verse 32, he explains... By the way, when God sends two dreams like this, it's to reveal his settled plan. God will do it, and he'll do it soon. He's in charge. Oh, but hold on. Then we remember four chapters ago, years ago for Joseph, back in his childhood, he had two dreams, didn't he? God set out his settled plan for him back then. In chapter 37, that Joseph would rule over his brothers. And then in chapter 40, two more dreams demonstrate his discernment and bring him to this point. And then we cast our eyes ahead over the next few chapters, and we'll see that over the next 14 years, Joseph's brothers will come to Egypt and bow down to him, so that through these three pairs of dreams, God's settled purposes are being fulfilled without fail. And Joseph, whose brothers threw him down into the pit, has been exalted to the highest place, just as the dream said. Look who's in control. See how it fits together. Or even zoom a bit further out and and remember the promise to Abraham from Genesis chapter 12 and 15 and 22. God promises Abraham that his descendants will become a great nation, but they will be stuck in a foreign country for 400 years. And that through them, the whole earth will be blessed. Well, 
By the end of chapter 41, we're set up for the people of Israel to come to Egypt and grow in a foreign country. But even more than that, by the end of chapter 41, in verse 57, all the world is coming to Joseph to buy grain. Already, the world is being blessed and saved from this famine, this death, by God's humbled and then exalted servant. And we see the pattern. God works to form his covenant nation according to his sovereignty and power. And every piece of the plot clicks into place. And there's, there's not a step out of line. There's not a moment when his rule's in doubt. I think we need to hear that, don't we? Because we don't get the mess of our lives. And we don't see the point of what's going on. Years ago, I used to run one of our church youth groups. It can be very hard work. Please show great appreciation for the guys who are involved in that now. There was a tricky cohort with a particularly challenging girl in it. And we just never seemed to make any progress. We didn't know what to do. It, it felt like we never got anywhere. And then out of the blue, several years later, I got a text, and I, I'm ashamed, I still don't actually know who from. But someone had heard that girl's testimony at a conference. She'd grown into a young adult believer, and she was talking about how seeds sown during those challenging, frustrating youth group sessions had begun to sprout. And it was so encouraging. It was so encouraging to know that in his sovereign wisdom, God had been playing a longer game than I could see. And we don't always get to see the fruit like that, do we? We don't often even get to know why the really hard things are happening to us or, or what we're for in this season. But a picture in Genesis 41 is of a God who is ruling so completely that not one step of his plan falls out of place. And as the Bible story expands and develops, that picture is reinforced and deepened, and then it comes back into a focus as Christ goes to the cross. And from that apparent utter defeat, God works his great salvation and victory and raises Jesus and exalts him to the highest throne so that chapter 41, verses 41 to 43, are just the palest reflection of the honor that Jesus will receive. Friends, put all your confidence and all your joy in the God who works according to his sovereign power. As Paul writes in those glorious words of Romans 8, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Nothing in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, finally then, the and really connected to that. As God forms his nation, Israel, in these chapters he works out his generous covenant promises. We, we get a glimpse here of the sort of unfailing goodness of God to his people. And really for this, we've got to go towards the end of the chapter after most of the action. So Joseph warns Pharaoh of the famine to come. He suggests a strategy to deal with it. He suggests that Pharaoh finds someone to manage it. 
I wonder if he knows he's writing his job description. I don't know how much he backs himself, but maybe. Uh, Pharaoh picks him out straight away, though, doesn't he, in verse 37. Can we find anyone like this guy? One in whom is the Spirit of God. And Joseph's rise is so fast. Verse 40, you shall be in charge of my palace. All my people are to submit to your orders. Verse 41, I put you in charge of the whole of Egypt. Verses 42 to 43, he is decked out in riches. People will bow down wherever he goes. He's a a picture of the glorified Jesus to come. Joseph is showered in riches and respect, but I think verses 45 to 52 are more important. So we, we see in verse 45 that Joseph, who was ripped away from family, is given a bride from the nation that he saved. And we see in verses 50 to 52 that Joseph, whose tribe and inheritance have been stolen from him, is given descendants and heirs. He's not locked out of the promise to Abraham. Names are important in the Old Testament. Joseph names his first son Manasseh, which means forgetting Not because he's literally forgotten his family. We'll see next week that he remembers very clearly. He comes to long for them. But God's faithful covenant blessings to Joseph are such that his previous sorrow and suffering are so far away that they no longer ruin his heart. As if what he's been given is more than what he's lost. And his second son, Ephraim, meaning twice fruitful, as God's abundant blessings rain down on him more than is even needed. And again, this is the pattern for the way in which God forms his people. And it's developed and it's elaborated through the Bible. He will meet and exceed the promises he made to Abraham. So Christian brothers and sisters, do you dwell on that promise? We're not there yet. We have the promise. We have the first fruits of Christ's blessing, but we're still very much in a fallen world. Daily, we feel the consequences of sin in our lives. Daily, we continue to fail ourselves and the consequences of our own sins ripple out and hurt others. Daily, we may feel hurt and face opposition or struggle and a longing for more. But the Apostle Paul wrote that he didn't even consider these trials worth mentioning compared to the glory to come. Or John, another dreamer like Joseph, he writes in Revelation 21 in his glorious vision of heaven, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Christian, just as for Joseph, 
God's covenant promises to you are such that you will forget your suffering. I think, again, not literally. I think we will always remember the full story of our salvation and praise Jesus for it. But our sin and our failing and our hurt will be so far away, they won't rule our hearts. And the fruitfulness of God's promise will dominate our thinking. God works out his generous covenant promises and we can worship and praise him for them. Let me finish then by asking, who are we in this story of Genesis 41? It doesn't always work to read ourselves into a Bible passage. It's risky. I don't think we're represented by Joseph. He's such a strong picture of Jesus. But let's just pick out a few things that might resonate with us particularly. Perhaps you're not a believer. Welcome. But perhaps you've been sat there listening slightly bemused. If this story is new to you, let me encourage you to explore a little further. Don't dismiss it. Maybe read around the surrounding chapters. Maybe read the first half of the book of Daniel. Or read the book of Esther. Look at how it all holds together. Maybe read one of the New Testament tellings of Christ's life. Maybe Matthew. And the consistency of the story that we begin to explore is amazing. We might find ourselves being like Pharaoh, looking at Joseph, and just being amazed by the Spirit of God. We might look at the way that God was at work in Joseph, Daniel, Esther, how those echoes come together in Jesus centuries later, and wondering, is, is the only way that can work, being if the Spirit of God is really there at work? Well, perhaps for you it's not a question of information. Perhaps you're just in desperate times. Perhaps you're in need and you don't know what the solution is. Well, maybe our eyes go to verse 55. And it, it's humbling, but maybe we're a bit like the lowly Egyptian peasants crying out in need. They're told, go to Joseph, do what he tells you. Friends, if you're burdened down with need and sorrow, imitate them. Go to Jesus and do what he tells you. He says this, he says, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Run to Jesus. He will not disappoint. Perhaps you're a believer. Let me show you two other places we might find ourselves echoed in this passage. Verse 45. Joseph, in his triumph, wins a bride from the nations, Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, but she doesn't belong to the Egyptian gods anymore. She becomes one of the mothers of God's nation. I read earlier that beautiful passage from Revelation that describes the new Jerusalem, the church, as the bride of Christ. Brothers and sisters, that's us. 
The church is the bride in whom Christ delights, whom he has won from the world. We belong to him now. He delights in you. Or look at verse 51. Joseph is given sons, an inheritance to delight in, to make him forget his suffering and rejoice in fruitfulness. And brothers and sisters, that is us again. Christ calls us his inheritance, sons and daughters the Father has blessed him with. He delights in you and will never let you go. He will work through hardship, but always according to his power and sovereignty and always to fulfill his generous promises. And so whatever our circumstances, it's in Christ that we can sing, it is well with my soul. Let's pray, and then we'll do that. Father God, thank you for the way you reveal yourself and your ways throughout Scripture. Thank you for the picture of Jesus and of your salvation ways in this chapter. By your Spirit, please move our hearts and minds to see you more clearly and to rejoice in what we see and to have confidence in you. Teach us to cast our anxieties and fears and sorrows on you, knowing that you care and provide for your people, and lead us in worship and obedience of your Son. Amen.